0: Great. Uh, before we begin today, um, I will ask if you have questions in a second, but uh, I have to admit that um, I was possibly a little distracted while preparing for this week uh, by uh, three women who I've known all my life. <laughs> we happen to be my sisters who came uh, over the weekend for us to have a sisters reunion, our first Just the four girls, girls, women, (laughs) when the youngest is 44, we're no longer girls. Um, But uh, no kids, no husbands, and it was wonderful. Uh, But uh, I was looking over this outline, and I'm not sure how this happened. It might have had something to do with talking with my sisters while making the outline. Uh, there, There are several things on it, but the main one is... Why would you put a parenthesis in L-O-V and nothing else uh, on A, uh, expresses wonder, and subpoint one, just cross that off. That's not supposed to be there. Little L-O-V on the, on the notes, on the outline notes. Is that not there? No. On, on God's lavish love, yeah, just. No. Okay. We're all cool now? Great. Wonderful. Do you have any questions for me this morning? Yes, Diane. Yes, yeah, sacrificial love. What is sacrificial love? And he's comparing that our love should be like Jesus, who, uh, and it says in Philippians 3, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to take advantage of, but but gave of Himself. And so, uh, we give of ourselves, and we, uh, and we care more about the other person's needs than our own. So, uh, sacrificial love is is love that costs us something, um, love that is at our expense love that is that cares more about the other person's needs than our own so unselfish uh, unselfishness Uh, but there does i mean there are situations and i can think of several where um, that can actually become unhealthy in a specific situation Uh, and so i was trying to open up those. Uh, those sorts of conversations, and I do think, in general, and I don't think we can use as an excuse our selfishness. And I think we know when we're being selfish and when, when we're being selfless. Generally speaking, I know, I know, I know when I am. Uh, so that was kind of what I was trying to open up there. And um, it's a great question, uh, but I, I would think that that his definition that he has there of, you know, being like Jesus in our giving, and and then and then gives the specific example of giving. Of, from our wealth, giving uh, monetarily, giving um, to those in need. Does that, does that help? Any? Great. Any other questions? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much uh, for this, this portion of 1 John, Father, that has convicted me and has caused me um, just to praise you, Father, for your goodness toward us for your lavish love that we would be called by you, your children. And uh, thank you so much for all of that wonderful um, gift that you have given to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this portion, this first portion of 1 John 2 and 3 that we're gonna look at today, 1 John 2:28 through 3.10, um, is is kind of adding on to what he's already written. And in 1 John 2, 18-27, remember that John was denunciating the secessionists. He, in fact, called them antichrists. And these antichrists were leading church members astray. And so in response to that then, John wanted to build up and equip the church members to face this onslaught by the secessionists. And he's going to continue to do that in this passage today he's going to continue to uh, equip and to build up the church members now he's going to build on specifically verse 27 uh, of chapter 2 just before he writes what we're about to read he writes this as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So his last words before writing this next part are remain in him, and that is what he's going to build on. He's going to build on that extor- exhortation to remain in in him and he also in in verse 224 he talks about that too but but he uh, in 27 specifically says it again so he's building on this this exhortation to remain in him in whom in jesus remain in jesus and that is the tense used there is an ongoing action so this is not some this is not a one-time thing this is a continual living in christ being in christ Uh, Jesus says in John 15, abide in me and I abide in you. That's another way of saying it or to live in him or to remain in him or to continue in him. It is our lives are lived in the context of who Jesus is and what he has done. Um, And so then our motivation then for faithfulness in, in, in remaining in him is this, that we may be confident and unashamed at his, at Jesus' coming, at Jesus' second coming that we talked about last week. Now, when that happens, there will be two reactions. Here's the reaction that there won't be. And I think sometimes people picture themselves being defiant or arguing their case. But really, I never killed anyone. There will be no one standing up to God and trying trying to convince him Of their righteousness. That will not happen. There will be two reactions. The first is shame or fear. Literally there it says they will shrink from him. Almost like when you're watching a horror movie, right? And you're just like, oh man, I can't, I can't watch that. I can't even witness this. And so there's a shrinking in fear and shame from him. And the second one is the complete opposite. It's confidence. It's knowing and being and being uh, praising God for His coming. And John wants his readers to be in that second category. We're confident not because of my life, not because of anything that I've done, but because who it is I am connected to, who it is that I remain uh, in, whom I remain because of Jesus, because of what He has done. So this is meant to to encourage his readers. This whole passage that we're talking about today is intended to encourage them. It is not a threat and it is even less, uh, even less trying to incite fear. Those who love God should look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Those who love the world should fear it. Um, Now, he says those who have this view of things, they do what is right. Did I ever read 28 and 29? Did I read that? I didn't even read it. Okay, did you read it while I was talking about that? Do you need me to read it? I'm telling you, I'm still on my weekend. I'm still in sister (laughs) reunion mode. Uh, He says those that that do what is right um, have, have been born of him. And that doing what is right, that is what it means to become more like Jesus when our behavior lines up with his will. And as we remain in him, as we remain in Jesus, we will look more and more like Jesus. Not physically, we won't look like, you know, a Middle Eastern man, um, but much like a child often becomes more like a parent, you've heard the saying, mirror, mirror on the wall, I am my mother, after all. We become more, and in my case, that's a wonderful thing. We used to have arguments about, you know, who's most like mommy. In my case, it's, it's something we want. Uh, but uh, it happens. It happens that we become more and more. And that's what happens when we remain in Jesus. Years ago, uh, when, when my little guy really was my little guy and not my big guy, uh, a friend who had grown up with Jeff and had never met Lane looked at Lane and said, oh my gosh, it's a little Jeff with red hair. And, and he is, and, and that just happens. It's not anything that, you know, Lane didn't wake up one day and say, I want to look exactly like my father. I always know when Lane is running in a pack of runners at cross country, I know exactly which one he is, because he runs just like Jeff. It's, exact, it's like watching Jeff run, only faster, um, and for a longer period of time. <laughs> Uh, So, you know, that's what happens. As we remain in Jesus, we begin to look on the inside more and more like him. I love the old, old song by Keith Green where he said, I want to, I need to be more like Jesus. And that's how we do it. However, this is evidence that we belong to God, that we have been born of God. It is not a condition in order to become born of God. We don't look like Jesus in order to be born of God. We are born of God and therefore we become more like Jesus. It is from start to finish God's work in us. We do not earn it. So now he's going to turn in verse 3 and I promise you I will read these verses in in chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 and talk about God's lavish love. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. John is expressing in the first part of this passage such wonder at what God has done for us. In fact, the first word is behold. Behold how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. I love that word lavished. It ha- it paints this picture of to a wonderful extreme is his love. But even more, uh, something I learned is how wonderful that word, how great is. That is an unusual word uh, that, that is for how great. And it, it's actually, I think, potapen I'm not sure. But it literally means, of what country? Of what country is this love that God has for us? It is such an amazing and unusual love. It seems almost foreign, even unearthly. You know, kind of like when your kid picks out something to wear and you're like, of what country did you choose this outfit? He's, he's just amazed by the love of God for him. One theologian says that God's calling us, that God calling us his children, is an act of legitimation in which the father names his child, so God names his child, and thereby makes a permanent claim to the identity of that child. None of this is the child's doing. The kid doesn't name himself. The father names the child. And, and we are called God's children. It's not saying so that I would call you God's children. No, we are called, called God's children by God. It is God himself who calls us who, his children, who names us as his child. So our identity is entirely in God's hands, in the Father's hands, so that our security is assured. We know to whom we belong. What a wonderful assurance this would have been to John's readers and to us to know that. Um, I had a wonderful nurse uh, uh, during my first labor and delivery with Josh, who was a Christian, loved her. And one of the things she said to me when I was telling her about naming Josh, Josh, and why we're naming Josh, Josh, she said, God names the babies. And I thought, God names the babies. <laughs> I named a baby. God brings the babies. God creates the babies. I get to name the baby. And when every time that we had a child, I always thought that Jeff was the difficult one in figuring out a child's name. You ever feel that way? It was about the third child I realized, I think I'm the difficult one. Because if it's a biblical name, not only do I have to like the name I have, well, it's any name, I have to like the name, I have to like the meaning of the name. And if it's a biblical name, I have to like the character in the Bible. And there are just certain people that might, they might be revered as fathers of the faith, not going to name a kid that, because I don't like him. You know, Samson never would name a kid Samson. I mean, I just think Samson was a complete jerk. So we came up with the name Joshua. And I did find out that God names the babies when Josh was only a few hours old. We named him Joshua, we named him Joshua because it means God is salvation. Joshua, the Greek, or the, excuse me, the Hebrew form of Joshua is Yeshua, and that's Jesus. And so I went through this labor and delivery and, I, delivery, and I never tell anybody the full story that has not had a child, but let me just suffice to say that, apart from modern medicine, neither of us would be here. It was really bad, and ended up with a C-section. And so I had been in labor for like 30-some hours, and they doped me up, and they'd given me a C-section, and then they gave me more morphine. And so this is what I remember after the fact. And, and when you're in a C-section, if you don't tell them otherwise, they put you behind the sheet, which is a really good thing. And Because Jeff and I, this is how we watched the C-section video. We, we shrunk in fear of, of the C-section video. So our, my, my hands are tied down like this. He's born... Jeff brings them around, I'm like, yeah, it's Josh, that's great, and then takes them away. And then they get me in my room, and Jeff's parents come in, and yeah, it's a boy, his name's Joshua, yeah. and then my parents come in, and yeah, it's a boy, and, and I'm gone. Because this combination of long delivery or long labor and heavy drugs just put me out. I wake up in the middle of the night, and I realize I haven't held my son. And so I called the nurse, and I said words that sounded so foreign to me bring me my son. And so she brought him to me, she put him in my arms, and she left. <laughs> and Jeff's asleep on the, on the pull-out couch across the room, and I'm thinking, I'm drugged here, I could drop this baby on his head at any moment. And then I had, I looked in my baby's eyes, and I had the most profound spiritual moment of my entire life. Because not only did I immediately fall so deeply in in love with this child that I would kill or die for him, I heard the Spirit of God say in my heart, Amy, I love you so much that I gave my Joshua willingly for you. And I thought, nobody, there's nobody that I'm giving this child for. Of what country is the love that God has for me that He would give His Joshua for me? That's what John wants us to realize about the love of God for us. He's making a contrast. In these verses. And the contrast is between those who do not know him, who are not the children of God, and those who do. In fact, one one B, where it says the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, actually, it literally starts out by saying, on this account, for this reason, the world does not know us. We are God's children, and that is why the world does not know us, does not understand us, because they don't know God. They don't know our Father. And so they don't understand us. And then he gives us this future consequence of this naming us his children, of, us, of him calling us our children. There is a future consequence. He says, now... And there's emphasis on that now, by the way. Now we are children of God. That is who we already are. It begins now and it lasts forever. But I think he's saying more than that. Because I also think he's saying who we are now can't compare to what we will be someday. Now we are children of God. But someday, someday when Jesus returns, we will see him in his glory and we will be just like him just like God's only begotten son can we pause for a moment to drink in the wonder of that that's amazing should we not long for that day when we will see our savior and be just like him And and John says we should have a response. In verse 3, he says, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Our hope in him leads to this response. If we know God's love and if we know we will live forever with him, that that should be powerful and positive motivation to live in a way that honors God. However, that isn't just a, I need to try harder, just try harder. To be more like Jesus, philosophy. For the power to live a life that honors God comes from God himself. From the Holy Spirit he has put in us. The Holy Spirit living inside of us. So this hope is itself our reason for confidence. Knowing God and being aware of the work he is doing in our lives should build, as one theologian put it, renewed joy and assurance among Christians, particularly when we are going through difficult times. So now he says in verses 4 through 10, he's going to talk about sin and God's children and children of the devil. And uh, here's what he says. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. And we're going to, by the way, I just want to tell you before we read this, because this is kind of tough stuff. So we're going to kind of take a, like a, th- you know, pl- plain level, 35,000 foot level look at this, because I, I think we, there are two really main points about this we need to understand that govern the whole passage, and then it'll make more sense to us. So here we go. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Remember that. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who has been born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So again, this is, this is kind of tough stuff. Let's go back. Thank you. Um, and, but I want to I kind of um, give you a, an overall picture of this. First, though, I want to talk to you about John's context. Notice in the middle of this, what does he say to them? Dear children, technia, please remember, as we said before, that John's purpose here is to reassure his readers in their faith. He is encouraging them to stay the course, a course to which they have already been confirmed. They are God's children. He is not here saying, but be careful, because if you sin, you're not God's child anymore. That is not his purpose. He is not trying to instill fear in his readers. He is not threatening them with losing their salvation. And it stands to reason That if there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, there is nothing we can do to unsave ourselves. And so, indeed, as some people do, to make these verses some sort of proof text about whether or not we can lose our salvation is to take it out of context and completely miss the point. These verses are intended to encourage us, dear children, Uh, They are are intended to cause us to praise God. They were not intended nor should they ever be used to question our salvation. I sin. Maybe I'm not God's child. We all sin. So then what is he saying? Well, the first key to understanding this, I'm going to give you two keys to understanding this, is that John still has his eye, as he always does throughout all three letters, on the secessionists. He still has them in view. He's still saying something to them, as well as to his readers. Remember the claims that they made. They claimed that they did not sin. They claimed that sin was not a part of their makeup or a part of their nature. Yet at the same time, they were living lives, they were, excuse me, they were not living lives of love toward others toward members of the church. So John is not confronting people who believed they were freed from sin, which is the Christian view that we've been freed from the power of sin, even though we continue to sin at times. Rather, he is confronting people much like the Corinthians who believe they were free to sin. Well, Jesus died for all my sins, so I can just keep on sinning. It doesn't matter. It doesn't impact my relationship with God. I don't need to repent. I don't need to. And he is saying, if that's your attitude, you're not a child of God. And you never were. So the real point of this passage is the permissibility of sin. Not whether or not a believer ever commits a sin. It is more about our attitude towards sin, toward the sin we commit, because let's face it, we all sin. Now, here's the second key to this passage, and this is really important. It is that word lawlessness. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And I I would submit that every time he uses the word sin there, we should see the word lawlessness, because in fact, sin is lawlessness. And lawlessness is um, one who is lawless, is one who stands in direct opposition to Christ. Like those who were in, the, were in the world, they are rebellious to God, his son, and his gospel. They are living in continual rebellion to God. So here's John's point. A follower of Jesus should never, in fact can never, if he's a true follower of Jesus, live in ongoing rebellion to God. Anyone who does has not truly been born of God. We are saved, we are born of God because we walk in, not because, excuse me, we're saved, not because we walk in obedience to God. Rather, we walk in the spirit living in obedience to God because we have been saved from sin and death. In other words, who we belong to should be evident in the way we live our lives, in how we live. So, all of this on what is the meaning of sin? If I sin, do I lose my salvation? Oh, no, I, I don't, you know, I sinned yesterday, what's going on? That is not where John would want us to focus. Where John wants us to focus in this is not whether or not we sin and what that says about our status with God. Rather, he would want us to focus on the un Fathomable love of God and our relationship with him that is what determines our status that is our hope and that is a compelling motivation to live in a way that honors God now the second half of this letter begins in uh, verse 11 of chapter 3 And just as, or not just as, in the first half of the letter, John's focus was on light and truth. In the second half of the letter, John's focus is on love within the community, within the community of believers, within the church. Now, this isn't a clear and fast division. I mean, he's not going to all of a sudden drop light and truth, but it's this sort of subtle shift of focus. In the first half of 1 John, John defined the difference between those who live in the light and those who live in darkness. He said that John's readers that those who live in the light are children of God, children of the light. The secessionists on the other hand were antichrists and children of the devil. They were in darkness. Now in the second half of the letter The focus is on their quality of life together. As children of God, how do we then treat one another? How do we relate to one another? How do we live in love with one another? He doesn't completely jettison his focus on the secessionists, um, but the secessionists have fractured the community, John's church, and so now John wants to rebuild it. And that is his primary focus, that is his objective, in these, pa- in this, these uh, verses to follow. The structure of uh, 1 John 3, 11 through 24, the rest of what we studied this week is simple. The first verse is exhortation. Love one another. You've probably heard that before. The second part is a negative example, how not to love. And that example comes from Cain in Genesis. And then he gives, John gives a positive example using Jesus as our model, and when he begins this passage and says, um, oh, interesting, I didn't know that was there, Uh, hello, Sister Reunion, I bet this is a really good quote, (laughs) but that's okay, we're not going to read it, we're going to move on. Uh, He says, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We've heard that before, haven't we? We heard that uh, in 1 John 1, 5. And it's almost identical. The wording is almost identical. There, the message was, God is light. Here, the message is, love one another. So he begins then uh, in verse 11 through 15 with the exhortation and the example of Cain. And he says this, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. So, the exhortation is to love one another, that's in verse 11, but there's a connection there that is left uh, uninterpreted in the Greek, or in the NIV, I should say, because this actually begins with the word hoti, which means for. So this actually says, oh, it does say four. That's the new NIV. The new NIV corrected it. That's great. For this is the message. So now we need to look back and say, because of what? He's connecting it to what he's just said about loving our brothers and sisters, that we are to love one another. And that's how we know we're connected to God. And he says, this message is from the beginning. Boy, we've heard that a lot of times, haven't we? What does it mean in this case? It means it's from Jesus himself. It is one of the first teachings of Christianity. This is literally foundational to the gospel, that we would love one another. Uh, John, and Jesus said, in, both in John 13 and John 15, love one another. As I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. John's making this same point. This is what you've heard from the beginning. And then he tells us in verses 12 and 15 how not to love using Cain as an example. Cain was a frequent example with New Testament writers. And he's making two points in this um, example. He's saying, first of all, to his readers, don't envy and hate one another like Cain. Um, Cain hated his brother. Cain envied his brother because God liked or God approved of his brother's actions more than he did his. Now, that doesn't mean God has favorites. It means that Abel did what was right, and God liked that, and Cain did what was wrong. Remember, God said, I had you read the passage, sin is crouching at your door. Before he ever killed his brother, Cain had a problem. And he hated his brother, and he envied his brother, and it was that envy and hatred that led to the murder. And so, he's saying, don't do that. But he's making a second point, because he's making a comparison here. Um, The same sort of hatred Cain had for Abel is present in those who are attempting to split the church, namely the secessionists. It is also present in those who love the world and hate God. They hate God's people as well. Jesus said, if they hate me, they will hate you. And that happens, doesn't it? If they hate you, if you ever listen to Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, they hate us. It isn't just that they believe in evolution. They hate Jesus. They hate the gospel. And they hate us. That's typical of those who love the world. And so then he says, you're murderers if you do that. And he's picking up on Jesus' teaching here. Because Jesus taught that when we hate and envy and malign one another, that is tantamount. That is exhibiting the same core sin as Cain, as a murderer. We are therefore in some sense also murderers because it is that same core of envy. We have that same um, sort of underlying issue. Even if we don't commit the act, we still have the sin in our heart. And John would point us back to the beginning. Love one another. And then he gives the positive example This is a completely different example. He's moved from the selfishness of envy and hate to the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice literally gives life to the community. Jesus is not only, he's an example for us to follow, and that's part of what John is saying here. Jesus is an example for us to follow. We are to love sacrificially too. But Jesus' sacrifice was like no other. He says he laid down or he set aside his life. That word means to divest oneself of something that is precious and personally valued. Jesus set aside his glory, his power, his life in oneness with the Father to come and to die for us. That is lavish. That is lavish generosity. And love, and then he gives a practical example of how we can live this out. And he tells us to be generous. He says, one way to show love is to give of our resources to those who are in need. I heard a speaker long ago say, you can tell, uh, and this is dated now, but uh, you can tell what we value by looking at our checkbook and our calendar. Where do we spend our time? Where do we spend our money? It's probably your debit card now, except for me, because my husband lives in the 1950s. <laughs> I still write checks everywhere I go, except for the growing number of places that say, uh, "We don't, we, we don't accept those." Are you kidding me? It's like, sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's a child of the 50s. He still has clothing that he had when we got married 28 years ago. No lie. In fact, he took one of his little warm-up jackets that looked like it is from the 70s, because it is to be repaired at the tailor, he paid (laughs) to keep it. I love my husband, I love my husband. I'd be like, goodwill a long time ago. The one thing he wore on an early date with with me that I literally thought when I saw him, I can't date this man. Remember the polyester shirts, the shiny? No, some of you are going, what polyester shirts? Okay, okay. remember the shiny polyester shirts? It was brown and orange and green with little dancing people on it. It was the butt ugliest shirt you've ever seen. And so after we were married, I took it, did I just say butt ugliest on tape in a church? I just did, I just said that. I took the shirt out of his closet and I hid it and I still know where it is and he has no idea where it is. Because he'd he, be seeing him in church next Sunday with it on. If I didn't, okay. That is, I did not plan to say that. I need to move on. Um, in a, so, so, in a sense, this is the way that we can give life to our Christian communities: is by being sacrificial in our giving to those who need in need. Check this out. This rocked my socks this week. There are two words in the Greek for life, zoe and bios. And we've talked about these before. Zoe means literal, physical, or spiritual life. Bios means life, but it often means material possessions. And John uses the word bios here. Verse 17 literally says, if anyone possesses the life, the bios of the world, so if anyone possesses material possessions, wealth, and refuses to share, he is shutting down his feelings toward those in need. When we, are to, when we refuse to give generously to others, we are not giving life. We are not giving Zoe like Jesus did to our brothers and sisters who are in suffering. And here's the line that blew my mind. Gary Burge says... Worldly bias possessions, can interfere with godly zoe. We can allow our possessions to block us from the life that God has for us and wants for us. Don't do that. Okay, Christ is God's son, and as God's son, he possessed more than we could ever imagine. Yet he did not keep what he had selfishly, but he gave himself voluntarily to others. John is asking us to give life to others by giving of our time and our talents and our money. Now, verses 19 through 24 are tricky, and, um, and they're difficult, And uh, I almost decided to not tell you what I really think this is saying, because it's that difficult. And I still have time to change my mind back again, because I have eight minutes. But I'm going to stick with what I really think this is saying, and you're going to have to stick with me And I'll try to be done on time. I will be done on time. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. Now, here's the common interpretation, and in fact, probably the commentary I've leaned more heavily on, has this interpretation. That John is trying to shore up his readers' confidence in their faith. In other words, he's saying that when they begin to doubt their faith, when their hearts condemn them, when your heart begins to say, am I really a believer, that God is greater than our hearts, and and that they can have confidence in their relationship with him. And that is the popular and easier interpretation. Uh, the, The more difficult one that I debated even presenting to you, I think, is more accurate, however, and I'll tell you why. It is more complicated, but uh, it's more technical, too. So if you were needing a nap when you came in here, this might be a good time to take it. But the NIV takes some interpretal, interpretational decisions that I don't think are correct are accurate. First of all, in the NIV, the word heart, cardia, is essentially made to be synonymous with our conscience, with how we feel about ourselves, or do we, are we really right with God. In its 156 uses in the New Testament, cardia is only a synonym for conscience here. The other times, outside of First John, it is never a synonym for conscience. That seems odd to me. Secondly, the word Uh, Pitheo or or Pietho is translated here set at rest so this is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence or how we reassure ourselves that word uh, is in most every other place that word it means to persuade or convince it occasionally means to trust or obey but nowhere else does it mean to reassure i think john is using the word to persuade or convince here and we'll come back to that in a minute finally there is a grammatical connection that is ignored in the niv verse 319 actually begins this then is how we put our put our uh, this then is how we know we belong to the truth so he's connecting it to what he has just said. And so John is carrying forward the discussion of loving others and giving of ourselves and our money selflessly. So based on that, based on how we give, that is how we know we belong to God. So here's the point of the passage, and I was going to read you um, a quote, but I'm not going to do that. This is how we know we belong to the truth. We don't close our hearts toward those in need. Therefore, we must persuade our hearts in the presence of God to stay open and not to succumb to meanness or stinginess. And whenever we find ourselves or we find that our hearts want to close, to be selfish and ungiving, we must remember the motivation that God is greater than our hearts and he knows and sees everything. Whatever we do, it will not go unnoticed by God. Further, his generos- ro- generosity far exceeds anything we could give. What reason could we possibly have to be ungenerous? Um, well, I'm just going to skip down to verse 23 where John sums this up, 23 and 24. Uh, and then I'm going to sum up the whole thing in a minute or less. Trust in Christ and love each other, all of which is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is when we see the Spirit's work in our lives that we know, we truly know that God lives in us. Ladies, I know when God's Spirit is alive and at work in me. I know it because I know me and I know I can't produce that kind of love on my own. So as we end today, I want want this passage to be more than words for me. I want it to be more than words for us. Because learning God's word is a wonderful thing. It's a powerful powerful thing. It's even a necessary thing. But if it never comes out in our lives, ultimately we're missing the point. And, And a passage like this one in 1 John underscores that point. Years ago, there was a popular book by Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. And here's the core of that book. He was exhorting people to find where God God is at work and join him in that. That is exactly what happened to me the first year I went to Royal Family Kids Camp. I saw where God was at work, and I became all in for that work. And that is when we feel God's pleasure. That is when our hearts beat with God's. Uh, Bill Hybels calls it a holy discontent, that there's something just, and it's gonna be different for different people, but it's gonna involve helping hurting people. Um, And oftentimes helping them financially, helping them physically, helping them spiritually too. Uh, And it's that thing within us that just isn't right. Years ago, we had a sermon series and the core of the sermon series was doing nothing is no longer an option guess when that was preached just before i went to royal family camp for the royal family kids camp for the first time doing nothing is no longer an option now many of you can listen to that and immediately put a finger on that discontent that holy discontent that place where your heart beats with god be all in for that whatever it is be all in for that But but here's the exhortation I leave with you. If you can't name that thing, if you don't know where your heart beats with God's, if you would say, I really haven't given much thought um, of where I spend my time and my talent and my money, then in gentleness and love, may I say to you, ask God to show you. He will answer that prayer. Look around and see where God is at work, and then be all in for that. Join him in that work. Dive in with all your heart. You will never experience God fully until you do that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word, and how it not only sears our minds and our hearts and our consciences, but, Father, it enables us to live a life that honors you. May we do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies.